At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. As we've turned the page to a new year, many are wondering what will come next and how to navigate it when it does. We invite you to tune into our series, What Now? How Tomorrow Shapes Today, as we explore the words of Jesus in Matthew 24 and 25. Together, we'll learn to look toward the future because what we believe about tomorrow defines the way we'll spend today. Let's discover God's answer to the question on everyone's mind. What now? Jesus said, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place, let the reader understand, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. Let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath. For then there will be great tribulation, such as not been from the beginning of the world until now. No, and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, don't go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you today for your grace, for your presence here with us, and for uh, the work of your Spirit Lord, thank you for your word, which is living and active, and all scripture is God-breathed, and it is useful for us. So today, Lord, we would ask that your word, the scriptures here, would, um, it would find its usefulness in our lives. Lord, that your spirit would take what is yours, and that he would help instruct us and shape us and help us live well today in light of your second coming. Show us grace and mercy, Lord, in this moment. And we pray this morning for our brothers and sisters in Dallas and Houston and Austin and communities in Texas, Lord. Uh, we know that this cold and snow has affected many of them deeply, and uh, there are uh, needs that are great. And so, Lord, would you show them grace? We pray for the gift that we were able to send. May that uh, find the right marks and the right people who need those things and uh, supply to them relief and help. Uh, Lord, we pray and ask that the gospel would advance and that by people loving one another and serving one another, that Christ would be exalted, that his good news would uh, be shared, and that people would come to you. So, Lord, use this in your, uh, in your power for your glory. And use your word here now among us, Lord. We, we ask for grace. Give us your work and your word, and may you get all the glory today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Be seated. Well, I don't know about you, but maybe for some of you this morning, as I read this passage of Scripture, you, you, you kind of like, your eyebrow kind of went up and you went, wait a second, what did he just read? What is this passage talking about? What is going on in the Bible here? Like, oh my word, I, I don't even know what's going on. Uh, I don't know about if this happens to you occasionally or often or, or maybe all the time. When you read the Bible, you kind of scratch your head and go, 
okay, what does that mean? What is that all about? When, <laughs> when is that? What, what should I make of, of this particular passage? How do I even understand it? Well, I want to tell you this morning that, that that kind of feeling and maybe even that frustration that you have when you read something in the Bible and you go, I don't know what to do with this passage, right? I don't even know what it means. That feeling is okay. We're not omniscient beings. We're not all-knowing beings. And to, to read a passage of Scripture that can be confusing, that can be somewhat uh, perplexing and even mysterious, and go, I don't understand it, that's okay. That's, that's, that's perfectly fine and good. And you can be encouraged that as strange as Scripture may be, it is still here for our good. Paul said to Timothy, all Scripture is breathed out by God. It's given from God, and it is useful for us. Even passages like the one I just read for us this morning, how is this passage appropriate? How does it work in our lives? What does it have to say for us? I want to just let you know this morning that, that it's okay to come in and go, big question mark. I, oh, I don't know what to do with this particular text. But in saying that, I also want to express, and, and as we study and think about God's Word, I want to express a caution for us. You see, sometimes we can read Scripture and we can be so confident that we know what we th think it says, and, and we're so sure of it that we can become arrogant. And we can think that anyone that might disagree or anyone that might have a different interpretation, particularly of a text like this that's a little bit uh, troubling, that they're, they're not Christians. I want us to be very, very, very humble this morning in interpreting this text. Uh, J.C. Ryle, who was an 18th century pastor, he wrote this about this passage. He said, All portions of Scripture like this ought to be approached with deep humility and earnest prayer for the teaching of the Spirit. So I, I want us to be humble this morning and say, This is, this is a tricky passage. It's a, it's a little bit of a thorny text. It's thorny and tricky for several reasons. First of all, the language here is not familiar language. Not only that, Jesus doesn't give us clear chronological distinctions in Matthew 24 and 25. It just doesn't line out sometimes the way we, we want it to. And furthermore, thirdly, faithful biblical Christians have interpreted this text over the centuries, and they have not all arrived at consensus together. There, there is room for interpretation. This, is, this passage and this series in, in many ways is dealing with a secondary doctrine, the doctrine of the end times, and there's open-handedness to that, that we can have different perspectives and that we can see that and we can agree and still hold fast to the core realities of the gospel themselves. So this morning, I want us to be humble. I want us to come to this passage with humility and say, Lord, help us. I, I as your pastor, am going to do my best. I've, I've enjoyed studying this passage this week, but, but I might tell you, I might not get it perfect. In fact, I'll tell you for sure, I won't get it perfect because I'm not a perfect human being. I'm not a perfect individual, and I'm not omniscient. But by the grace of God, I want to do my best, and I want to help us humbly come to the Word of God today and, and see what Jesus has here for us. We're in the series called What Now? What now? How tomorrow shapes today. And sometimes tomorrow, as we look for it, we want to see and know the future, requires us to actually go to yesterday to shape today. Living today sometimes requires us to look back and go, how did that affect and influence how we live today? We're studying in Matthew 24 and 25 what's known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He gave this teaching because he was on the Mount of Olives. That's what it's called, or why it's called the Olivet Discourse. He was on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. Sometimes in order to discern how tomorrow shapes today, we've got to go back and ask how yesterday shaped today. And that's what this passage helps us see. 
Now, if you remember, Jesus is answering the question the disciples have raised to him, particularly about his deeply troubling statement in verse 2 of chapter 24. Just go with me back to the beginning of chapter 24. Jesus was in the temple with his disciples. That's what Matthew 21 and 20 uh, through 23, all that, those three chapters have talked about. Jesus has been in the temple. He's been teaching. He's been shutting down, really, the religious leaders and proving their hypocrisy and demonstrating that he is the Son of God. He's been showing his authority. He's been showing he is the Christ. And, he, and he's really condemned the Jewish leaders and their hypocrisy and their false religion. And, and as he concludes that section, he laments over the city of Jerusalem at the end of chapter 23, and he leaves the temple grounds with his disciples. They leave the temple there, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going, in his way, uh, going away. But his disciples are having a tourist moment. They see the grandeur and the glory of Herod's temple. They see just the remarkable beauty and the impressiveness of that structure and the architecture, and they are awed by it. They ooh and awe as they come out of the temple, and they're pointing out to him the buildings of the temple. But Jesus said to them, this is verse 2, you see all these, all these buildings, this temple complex, how magnificent it is, how glorious it looks. He says, you see all these, do you not? He says, truly, truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That is a brain-exploding concept for the disciples. One historian, Josephus, who was a Jewish historian, he saw this temple building and he, he commented about it like this. He said, now the outward face of the temple was covered all over with plates of gold of great weight. And at the first rising of the sun reflected back a very fiery splendor and made those who forced themselves to look, up, to look upon it to turn their eyes away just as they would have done at the sun's own rays. The, the temple building was gilded in gold. And so as the sun hit it, the glory would just pop. And it'd be like, oh, looking at the sun. Furthermore, Josephus says, this temple appeared to strangers when they, when they were at a distance like a mountain covered with snow. For as to the parts of it that were not covered in gold or not gilt, they were exceedingly white. And it was this white marble that Herod used to construct the temple building, some stones weighing up to four, 40 tons. It was massive, glorious, beautiful. So when Jesus tells his disciples, hey guys, guess what? You're, you're going to come, there's going to come a point where there's not going to be one stone standing upon another. They just can't fathom that. I mean, this temple building is so incredible. It's so beautiful. And, and in their minds, when Jesus says one stone's not going to stand upon another, that also equivalates to their minds to something else, that the end is here. I mean, if this building's going to be destroyed, then the end has come. The, you know, it's going to be the final day. Justice will be done. It's all like, the temple stands. It has to stand. It would be very similar for us to envision the complete destruction and ruin of the White House building or the Capitol uh, complex in, the, in, in Washington, D.C. When, when we would envision those kinds of destructions, we'd think America is over. It's all done. That's what's going on in the disciples' minds as Jesus tells them one stone will not stand upon another. So they ask a question. They have a really, I mean, it's just bringing all the questions. So they raise one. They raise with him there. It's there in verse 3. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives, so they go across the valley over to the Mount of Olives, right across from the temple building itself. The disciples came to him privately. So they circle up. They say, okay, Jesus, what you just said, like that's, that's crazy. 
we've got questions. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of your age? The disciples want to know, really, it's two things here. They want to know, when will this prophecy of Jesus, that the temple will be destroyed, one stone won't stand upon another, when will that happen? And then secondly, they want to know when he's coming back, when the end of the age is. That's that second phrase there. It's one, it's one thing. In the Jewish mind, these were simultaneous events. And so what Jesus does in the rest of this passage in chapter 24 and 25 is he teaches answering their questions. He's compassionate. He's wise. He wants them to help and know and see. The text of last week's sermon, which covered verses 1 through 14, pointed out the three scenes that Jesus gave that would lead up to the time when the temple would be destroyed. There'll be great destruction. It'll be marked by wars and fighting, just all sorts of devastation. There'll be deception that goes around, a great deception, false teachers and false messiahs, spreading lies, spreading conspiracies. And then there'll be a great declaration as well. The gospel will go to all the nations. That's verse 14. The test, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come, Jesus says. Now, I want you to note here that the word that Jesus uses for the end in verse 14 is not the same word that the disciples use in verse 3 to refer to the end of the age. There's two different words here, and I believe that Jesus has in mind, he's answering them the question, when will these things happen? When will this temple be destroyed? Jesus has in mind here the end of the temple, and he's told them that will occur. And so that's what he addresses here in our passage in verses 15 through 28. One stone will not stand upon another. And he says, I want to show you, tell you and show you how that'll happen. What he does in verses 15 through 28 is he prophesies about the destruction of the temple. Let me talk, take us through this prophecy here, this word of Jesus, so that we're confident in who he is and what he says. And we see what he is saying to these disciples about the question they've raised. When will these stones be overturned? When will this happen and this temple will be destroyed? When will these things be? In verse 15, Jesus says this. He says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of, the prophet, spoken of by the prophet Daniel standing in the holy place... Let the reader understand. Now, this is the key that Jesus gives to begin to understand the rest of what's going to happen. This is the event that sets up everything else that Jesus talks about here in this passage. He's telling his disciples there's this abomination of desolation event. It's the lead up. And Daniel has prophesied about this. Daniel spoke about something like this. That's why Jesus says, let the reader understand. The reader of Daniel the disciples here, they've read Daniel. Daniel has talked about it. In fact, it's in Daniel eleven thirty one. Daniel prophesies and refers to a time when the kings from the north, a king from the north, would come and profane the temple and its sacrifices. Here's what Daniel said in Daniel chapter 11. He says, forces from him, from the king of the north, shall appear and profane the temple and fortress and shall take away the regular burnt offering and they shall set up the abomination that makes desolate. The same thing that Jesus was talking about here. Jesus is saying, or Daniel is saying, that there would be an act of sacrilegious nature that would desecrate the holiness of the temple where the sacrifices occurred, where the burnt offering happened. Now, Jesus is telling them this, and he says, let the reader understand, so that they remember their history. He points them to Daniel and says, remember what Daniel said? And, and then he says, let them understand, reader understand, this has happened. 
The disciples would have it in their mind. They know their history well. The events of 167 B.C. 167 B.C., when Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek general, he invaded Jerusalem from the north. He went into the very temple complex and structure itself. He ended the Jewish burnt offering sacrifices, and he set up an altar to worship pagan gods and offer pagan sacrifices on that altar, including the sacrificing of pigs, which would have been a huge offense and a huge sacrilege against God on that altar. The pig was unclean in the Jewish mind, and so to do that was just to, just to offend and desecrate that place and that building. And that happened in 167 B.C. Antiochus uh, basically set up a statue to himself and said, I'm God, I'm to be worshipped. The Jews would have remembered, Jesus' disciples would have remembered from their history that event. And Jesus here is telling them that a similar sort of thing will happen again. When will, be the te- when will the temple be destroyed? Jesus says you're going to be looking for an event similar to what happened that Daniel described, an abomination of desolation. And then he tells them what they should do when that event occurs. When, when that happens, when you see that thing go down, here's what you need to do. This is verses 16 and following. He says, when that happens, let those who are in Judea. So he has a specific geography here. He's speaking to his disciples who might live in and around Judea. This isn't global and worldwide. This is, this is locational. Then the, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down and take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back and take his cloak. Basically, Jesus says, when you see an event like what Daniel described, again, happen in the temple, run. Get out of Dodge. Like, flee for your lives. If you're in Judea, get up to the mountains, get on the high ground, escape everywhere. If you're on the top of your house, those houses in the first century in Jerusalem uh, had roofs that people would work on, and they'd do laundry, and they'd do other sorts of things. The staircase was outside the house, and the houses were close together. Jesus says, don't even go downstairs. Just, like, jump from house to house to house and get out of the city. Run away. Don't go down. And if you're out in the field and you're working, don't come back home and pack up the minivan and get all your doomsday stuff and then drive on out. He's like, you just go. You flee. You run. He says, this is so cataclysmic. It's so huge. It's so terrifying. You just need to move. Furthermore, he says in verse 20, uh, in verse 19, he speaks of just how hard this will be. This suffering will be great. And he says, alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days. It'll be hard for them to travel. It'll be hard for them to flee. And so he he expresses compassion and and concern. This will be upsetting the world. He says, pray, pray in verse 20 that your flight may not be in winter because it's really hard to travel in the winter or on the Sabbath when nothing's open, there's no supplies anywhere and you just, you got to move, but you don't want to. And he says, pray that it doesn't happen then. He says, for then there will be a great tribulation, such as, not, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, and no will ever be. Now, Jesus here is speaking with uh, what some call, scholars call uh, hyper, uh, apocalyptic hyperbole. Jesus is just layering on hyperbole. You're like, this will be the worst thing you can conceive of or imagine. It, it'll be really, really, really bad, like the worst ever, ever, ever. It's horrible. He's trying to layer into their minds, get out of town, flee, run. And he says in verse 22, if those days had not been cut short, no human being 
would be saved or would be spared alive. That's what the intention of that word there is. But for the sake of the elect in those days, those days will be cut short. There's God's grace. He shows his mercy. He cut short the days for his elect. No human being would even make it out alive if God hadn't been merciful. With this event comes even more trouble. If anyone says to you, verse 23, look, here's the Christ, or there he is, don't believe it, for false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. He says, it's not just the trouble that will happen with the temple and this abomination of desolation and all of this fleeing, but, but then there's going to be people that are like, hey, look, there's the Messiah, or oh, oh he's over there, go, go see him, there he is. All these false prophets, all these false Christs will rise up and they'll be deceiving and spreading conspiracies and lies. And they'll be tricking and seeking to trick even God's elect, but they won't be able to. But the lies, will, they'll be profound. They will spread. And note here, Jesus, what he says in verse 25. See, I have told you beforehand. Again, remember, who is he speaking to directly? His disciples who asked him the question, when will this temple, you said this temple, will be turned upside down? Not one stone will stand upon another. So when's that going to happen? And Jesus says, you see that abomination of desolation? There's your sign. Run, flee, everything's going down then. I've told you beforehand. Jesus is warning and showing mercy to them. The destruction will be horrible. Even more so in verse 26 to 28, the lies of the false prophets will be saying, the Messiah has come back. Christ is here. Look, if they say to you, look, he's in the wilderness, in a far remote place, don't go out there. If they say, look, here he is in the inner rooms, in the secret places, like we've got the knowledge, we know where he's at, he's stashed away, don't believe them. They'll be saying, here's the Christ, there he is, go here, there. Again, lies, deceit. And Jesus says, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. He says, I'm not going to come back and be hidden away. It's not going to be some secret that only a few people know about who have the inside track. He says, when the Son of Man comes again, it'll be like the lightning that flashes from the east to the west in a dark sky. Everybody sees it. Everybody knows it's there. The lightning flashes, and you're like, there was lightning. The Son of Man will come again. Everybody will see him. He will not be mistaken. It won't be hidden away. Furthermore, he says in verse 28, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. It's like looking up into the sky, and when you see the birds circling up in the sky, what do you know is on the ground somewhere down below? A dead body. That's what it will be like for the Son of Man coming. That's, that's how obvious it'll be. He'll come, everybody will know, oh, yep, obvious, there he is. He's here, not hidden away, not stashed away. Now, this is Jesus' prophecy. He, again, he is instructing his disciples who've asked this question about the destruction of the temple. And it raises a question for us at this moment, going, okay, when did this happen? What does this have to do with us? If this was the disciples' question, when is the temple going to be destroyed, we ask the same question today. And the answer is, this has happened. This event that Jesus prophesied, it has occurred. The temple that Jesus speaks of in Jerusalem has been destroyed. It's not standing today. You can't go to Jerusalem and see this building that he spoke of. In fact, Jesus' words proved true. Not one stone of that temple building stands upon another. Now, I'm going to pivot here just to give you a little world history. It's important for us to see how world history has shaped or has been uh, 
fulfilled in what Christ has spoken. This occurred, this event, all of these things here that Jesus talked about, occurred in the period from about 66 AD through 73 AD, is what the Jewish wars are known by. This event in particular with the temple being destroyed happened in 70 AD when Titus, who was the son of the Roman emperor Vespasian, sacked the city of Jerusalem. He ransacked and desecrated the temple itself and destroyed it completely. Not one stone stood upon another. In Luke's account of Jesus' discourse here, you go to the gospel writer Luke and you read what he writes about Jesus' Olivet Discourse. He records Jesus saying this, But when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then you will know the desolation has come near. And that's what happened. Josephus, the Jewish historian that I mentioned to you earlier, who, by the way, was not a Christian, so he doesn't have any stake in the game to kind of make up history to fit the Bible. He's just recording it as he saw it. He was an eyewitness to these events. He was there at Jerusalem on 70 AD. He saw the destruction of the temple, and he wrote about it extensively in his volume called The Jewish Wars. If you want to do just a little history reading and primary source stuff, go read it. It's fascinating. It's terrifying. Again, remember, Jesus is telling his disciples, those living in Judea, to prepare for these things. Be ready to flee. He is saying this to show them grace so they can flee if they're in the region. Matthew's gospel itself was probably written in the early to mid-60s, so probably four or five years before this event actually even happened. So this word, this scripture for them, even would be helpful for the first church, especially those living in Judea, to know what to do. The events of the Jewish war were horrific. There was a long tension between the Jews and the Romans. They did not have a peaceful coexistence and a peaceful history. The Jews saw the Romans as an oppressive, over-threatening, <laughs> boot-on-their-neck government power. It had been long-standing for multiple generations. But in 66 AD, that oppression rose up to such a, a fevered pitch In 66 AD, there was a revolt in the city by the Jews. They had enough of their Roman occupiers. And so this revolt happened. Nero, who was the emperor at the time in Rome, was so bothered by this that he dispatched Vespasian and Titus to crush the rebellion. He was done with the Jews, done with the tension that they had in the region, done with the fact that there wasn't ever peace. And so he said to Vespasian, go and knock this thing down, end it, finish it. So Vespasian and Titus began to, with the Roman armies, invade Galilee. They started in the north in 67, and they started a systematic defeat of the Jewish people by going to their cities, crushing their cities, eradicating them, and taking down the strongholds in the area. They moved systematically from the north through the south, and they started heading towards Jerusalem. Now, in that time, when you were in the midst of a conflict and a battle like that, what you would do is if if you were a a normal citizen, a normal uh, person in that time, you would run and flee out of the country into a place of security and safety. You didn't want to be caught in the wave of the advancing army and their pillaging. So you would run to Jerusalem, the largest city in the time. Everyone in Judea and Galilee starts fleeing into the city of Jerusalem for safety. The walls are big. They're protective. It's hard to take the city of Jerusalem. And the city population swelled in size. Hundreds of thousands of people moved in. The temple area, as everybody was moving in, the temple mount, the temple area itself, became a desecrated place. There was bloodshed. 
It turned from an area of worship and sacrifice to God into a military stronghold. Different factions of Jewish leadership began to to jockey for position to hold the temple and to use it for their uses. And they began to fight over it so much that there was killing and bloodshed in the temple itself. Something that would desecrate the sanctity and the purity of that place like Daniel had described. Titus and his army got down to the city of Jerusalem in early 70 AD, and they started a siege campaign. Basically, they encamped themselves around the city, cut off access into and out of the city itself, and they made sure that nothing got in. No food, no supplies, no provisions. They didn't have airdrops back in those days. I mean, there was no way to get stuff in. And in fact, if they were going to hurl anything into the city, it was going to be huge stones and rocks just to bring rubble down and destruction upon the city itself. Titus's aim was to choke out the life of the city by starving them to death. It was a long game. He wasn't going to sit there for just a few days. He was going to sit there for years until Jerusalem surrendered, until they gave up. The siege itself was so awful, as Josephus writes, the Jews started warring against themselves. They started fighting each other. Titus would send in Jews who had retreated or who had uh, uh, defected, he would turn them and send them back in to start riots, to be insurgents planted in the city. Supplies were so limited that Josephus writes about the fact that people were eating the leather from their sandals to try and stay alive. Fathers were pulling the food out of their children's hands so that they could eat it themselves. Mothers were sacrificing their babies to stay alive in cannibalization. The war atrocities were horrific, the worst that anyone could imagine. And yet the days were cut short. After five months, only five months, but five months nonetheless, in August of AD 70, the siege ended suddenly because Titus was able to break through the walls of the city. The days were cut short, and Titus and his armies, the Roman armies, ran into the city, and they began to burn and pillage everything to the ground. The Roman Soldiers themselves went up to the Temple Mount. They set up the signs of Caesar on the temple area and prayed to and worshipped Caesar himself there and desecrated the temple grounds. Douglas Sean O'Donnell, a pastor and commentator, he wrote about it and he said, at first, the temple was ordered to be preserved. But when it was later gutted, but it was later, when it was later gutted by a fire set by one of the soldiers, the order came from Caesar to raise the whole city and the temple to the ground. What happened next was quite remarkable. Once the temple burned, the the soldiers were so eager to retrieve the gold, which melted, and had flowed into the cracks between the stones, that they overturned the huge stones of of burned-out building to retrieve the gold. Therefore, precisely as Jesus had predicted, when they were finished, not one stone was left standing upon another. Forty years after this event, Josephus wrote, and he said, all the rest of the wall encompassing the city was so completely leveled to the ground as to leave future visitors to the spot, no ground for believing that the city had ever been inhabited. All said between 1.1 million and 1.4 million people were killed in the Jewish wars and in this holocaust. Later, Josephus would write, It appears to me that the misfortunes of all men from the beginning of the world, if they be compared to these of of the, the Jews here, 
are not so considerable as they were. Just as Jesus said, there will be great tribulation. So what does that tell us when we consider this past event? Jesus' words were perfectly fulfilled. Not one stone stood upon another. What does that tell us in this past event in light of today and in light of the future? How do, how do we glean any instruction from this passage? Well, Jesus was preparing his disciples for real, future to them, suffering. And in doing so, he's preparing us for suffering as well. You see, we have the tendency to think that, that suffering is not for the Christian. We, we come to Jesus, we get saved, and then our lives are just like awesome. They're great. They're beautiful and wonderful, and we just kind of get the, the nice escalator of peace up to heaven. It's just wonderful. We don't have to face the trials and the tribulations of the world or hardship. Some of our thinking is that we as Christians get out of all the hard and horrible stuff in the world. And the world has to deal with it. This isn't for us, so we just get to escape and not have to deal with it. But Jesus, in giving this preparatory word to his followers, is showing them grace. And he's showing us grace by preparing us for the reality of hardship and affliction and war and poverty and suffering in the world. The point is this, don't be surprised when suffering comes. Don't be surprised when suffering comes. Jesus has prepared them, he's prepared us for it as well. And I want to draw out just briefly here three application points that help us apply this. Three ways as we study and we see what Jesus said about the destruction of the temple, how it relates to us today, help us understand our own lives here and now. First of all, know that suffering will come. Know that suffering will come. Jesus' words prepare his followers. He's speaking this to his disciples some 30 years before the event happened. And this is his grace. He's saying, guys, you're going to be in Judea. I want to prepare you for this. Get out. Get away. It's going to be horrible. It's helpful for us to see this because the age from Jesus' ascension to Jesus' return, from his ascension to heaven to his return from heaven, will always be filled with suffering, hardship, war, famine, earthquake, pestilence, false teaching, and the like. From the ascension to his second coming, we stand in this age the earth groans, Jesus says in Romans. There's filled with affliction and hardship and famine, natural disaster and man-made disaster. We should not act as if all these things are just for a future generation and we don't have to deal with it. Or we would somehow be surprised by it. Peter writes in 1 Peter 4, he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. This age that we live in is an age of hardship and suffering, and the earth groans. And it will always be filled with wars and hardship and pestilence, natural disaster and man-made disaster. The Christian life is ultimately a refugee life. We stand on the run from the, the effects of sin and the fall all the time. So know that suffering will come. This COVID pandemic, it's not a surprise. It's part of a fallen world. The wars and the struggles and the hardships that we've seen in the last several years, even in the last year condensed in so many ways, are not to surprise us. They're part of the fallenness of this world. And Jesus, in preparing his disciples, prepares us to understand suffering will occur. But not only that, 
We should trust the sovereignty of God. We might look at the suffering and the hardship. We might look at the the world and it might cause us to go, God, have you left everything out of control? Did evil win? Is, Is random chance what's ruling the cosmos? Or is fate, whatever that is, in control? And the reality is that God is in control. He is sovereign over all things. Notice here, Jesus predicted this. In his knowledge, he laid out the nature of the age before his disciples and says, here's what you'll face. It's the age we stand in. The sovereignty of God reminds us that he determines the length and breadth and width of our sufferings. Christ himself has measured them out, even shortening the days, if you will, for his glory and his goodness to us. We're reminded of what Paul said in Romans 8. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So when we feel the sufferings of this world and of this age, we're to lean into the love of God. We're to trust him and remember he is in control. He has not abandoned his people. He has not forsaken us. He has not left us to our own devices Christ in himself has not lost one ounce of his affection for us and the sufferings we endure, sufferings like COVID and natural disasters and wars and political conflicts and the like. Those are not outside of Jesus' sovereign control, his rule and reign over all things. You might be facing a specific suffering in your life today, or we may all face more difficulty and trial in the days to come. We don't know. We don't know what those are. But friends, those are not outside the hand of God. He measures our suffering so that he gets ultimate glory and for our ultimate good. And we can trust him in that. We can trust him. So we are to continue to pursue him, to pray. He tells his disciples in verse 20, pray that your flight may not be. He says, go to him, cry to him with the suffering and the hardship that you face. Trust that he's in control. He'll cut the day short if he has deemed fit but all things for his glory and for our good. So know that we will face suffering and trust the sovereignty of God. And thirdly, realize that Jesus' return will be unmistakable. All this gets to us to kind of freak out and go, well, is this the end? Is it coming? Did Jesus show up? Did we miss it? Are we going to get it? Like, what's happening here? The point of this passage isn't for you and I to try and plot out signs and wonders and create timelines to determine the date of the second coming. That's not what the Bible does. That's not the way it works, okay? So you can take your ammo can and your crayons and quit drawing out timelines, okay? You don't need to do that. Jesus makes it abundantly clear, undeniably clear. You will know when he returns. We won't miss it, friends. He'll show up and we'll praise him and we'll be so glad he has come again. There'll be no mistaking it, like lightning bolting across the sky, or the, bulch, the vultures circling the corpse, like, there it is. His coming will be clear, and everyone will know when the Son of Man comes in his glory. All eyes will see him. And because of that, because his coming will be clear, because we will know it clearly, we need to silence the voices of the liars and the false prophets and the false teachers that are deceiving us or attempting to deceive us, even today, away from Christ We today are still flooded with false teachers, with televangelists, with YouTube prophets that are making predictions about the end of the world, about presidential elections and the like. Friends, they are deceivers. 
Their words do not stay with Scripture. Stop listening to them. Stop giving them the authority in your life that only the Word of God should have. They're trying to make themselves the Messiah and their knowledge their Messiah and their secret counsel Messiah and taking the spotlight off of Jesus the Messiah. And one thing I'm sure of that the Bible tells us is that Jesus will not share his glory. He won't. Jesus will come again. That is the one clear teaching about the end times that we know from the Bible. Jesus will come again. He will come bodily. He will come physically. And all eyes will see him. And he will usher in his eternal kingdom. And that's what we need to prepare for. Jesus is the one we need to focus on. Not the dumb conspiracy theories and dumb lies from vague and deceitful internet sources like QAnon that are really cults to pull you away from Christ. Look to Jesus. Our focus as followers of his should be this. Paul said this, May I never boast except that I boast in the cross of Christ to which I have been crucified to the world and the world to me. We don't need to figure out timelines. His, his coming will be unmistakable. So let's look to him. Let's get our eyes on him. The question of this text is what now? This series is what now? How do we live today in light of tomorrow? That requires us to live today in light of yesterday as well. We can look back and see that Jesus did not turn his face away when he was suffering. He didn't turn away from the suffering, but he himself set his face to the cross. He set his face to Jerusalem, and he suffered and died for us in our place. Jesus himself paid the penalty of our sin so that all who repent and believe in him will be forgiven. They'll never be put to shame. They will not suffer the internal punishment of death that we all deserve. Instead, Jesus gives us eternal life to all who believe in him. So we ourselves can face suffering in the days ahead well. We can face suffering knowing that Christ has suffered as our example and our salvation. We can face suffering knowing that he is sovereign over all our suffering. And we can trust him. We can lean back and rest in his care. He does all things for his, good, or his glory and our good. And we can face suffering knowing that his return will be unmistakable when he comes, and he will make all things new and right. We can put the spotlight on him in all of life and follow him in all things. J.C. Ryle, the pastor that I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, he lands it this way. Our plain duty then is to live always prepared for his return. Let us walk by faith and not by sight. Let us believe in Christ, serve Christ, follow Christ, and love Christ. So living, whenever Christ may return, we shall be ready to meet him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the way that you have sought to prepare us, even for the suffering of this broken and fallen world. We are in the midst of hardship, both natural disaster, man-made disaster, and the disaster of our souls. So we need a Savior. And we thank you that Jesus did not shirk back from suffering, but that he endured. He went to the cross for the joy set before him and laid down his life. So Father, give us grace to trust you. Give us grace to endure suffering well. Give us grace to rest in your sovereign plan. Lord, give us grace as we look for your coming. All eyes will see him. 
And so, Lord, we say, come again quickly. We are ready. Thank you for your word. Work it out in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name we ask this. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself to us today.